This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten. Today I'm joined by Professor Seth Warmberg, who's returning to the show to discuss his article, Social Media and Democracy After the Capitol Riot. Welcome back. Great to see you. Thanks for having me here. So a very loaded subject in uh, 2022 with the January 6th hearings going on, but this is more of a systemic issue is the case you you make in your article, I think, where there's a lot more in terms of the business end of things, how social media companies operate, the effect it has on we're all just guinea pigs, essentially, when it comes to this technology over the last uh, 15 years. What led you to write this article? Well, let me maybe level set just by explaining what the article is about, which is Web 2. And it's a, maybe a term I'll, I'll use a little bit. But just basically, Web 1 is the idea that we would have some interconnected Internet where people could share information. And, and the first version of this, for those of us who are old enough to remember, was a lot of maybe message boards and a lot of universities that hosted libraries. And you had this sort of cultivated information and, and it looked a lot and felt like a lot like a library where you'd go out and, and, and kind of receive kind of cultivated information. But um, somewhere around the turn of the millennium, we began developing Web 2. Some will say it, it even relates to one single HTML line called the form and effectively um, allowed for much more bilateral user-generated content on the web. So what we know as of social media today runs on what we could call Web 2, which is effectively um, hypertext markup language uh, that that allows bilateral communication. And that means that we have the ability to share our thoughts, feelings, and opinions um, and facts in a way that was impossible before. So this spans a number of interesting technologies that um, have some very different characteristics, ranging from, on the one hand, maybe a Wikipedia, where you've got people co-editing articles and potentially producing some information that would not otherwise exist because it's niche or because it's um, contentious, uh, and then having it sort of co-edited. On the other end of that spectrum, you have TikTok, where people are producing, you know, six-second videos of, of you know, what have you, right? And short, short, this short, short form video where it's much more about the individual user, about the experience, about maybe the visual impact of, and sometimes the emotional impact of, of communicating. Um, so I guess the starting point then is what's going on in this web 2.0 world um, and, and, and how did it relate to the capital riot? So, I mean, fast forward from the millennium to uh, January 6th, um, you know, an angry mob stormed the Capitol and, and trampled on American democracy and what I consider to be a truly horrific, um, demoralizing and frightening scene. And we now have hearings about how the president at the time, uh, President Trump, was um, stoking the crowd and, and cultivating that anger. And my, my fundamental question is, how did he even have that ability? How is it even possible that that any any human being, president or not, could you know formulate such a crowd? And and this crowd, by the way, it formed well before January sixth. I mean, this this existed on the internet, existed through social media. So the question was uh, that I sought out to answer is what is the role of social media in um, facilitating this type of organization? And 
is it good or bad? You know, and what do we want to do about it? Because um, something like January 6th should never happen again. Uh, that was a, an obvious breakdown of, of our civic value. And, um, and while protest is valued and valuable, um, that type of sort of storm an institution, a federal institution, uh, likewise, any type of like plans to storm a, a personal institution or, or God forbid to, to go and, and commit some heinous activity in a school or other public setting, um, that should never happen. And, and um, is, there, is there something wrong with the law of social media that's allowed it to be a tool for this horrific purpose? Um, and so th that's what inspired me to think about this article. Yeah, there's been many uh, armchair lawyers out there making interpretations of the First Amendment being Im implied with uh, the freedom of speech on certain platforms and everything. But it, it ultimately has very little to do with the First Amendment at all with what's published on these platforms. It's terms of service related. There's questions around editorial guidelines that these these uh, out these platforms are able to have them being very careful it's platforms they're not uh, publishing or any or editing or anything like that per se and where the line when it comes to section 230 and everything really comes in so it's very complicated and you're absolutely right there's this distraction around the first amendment i mean i'm not here to talk about the first amendment except to say that the first amendment generally doesn't apply to private actors I mean, the First Amendment is about the people's protections from the government. But you can't come to my house and say whatever you want. I have every right to exclude you from my house. If you come here and you make hateful comments that I find objectionable, I have every right to tell you, please, please stop making those comments or leave my private residence. Um, I don't have to tolerate that. And um, you just zoom that out and my private residence becomes a digital residence. Right. And a digital residence is Facebook and Facebook owns Facebook. I mean, I don't know, Meta, I guess, owns Facebook, right? That's their private property. You want to come to Meta's property and have your discussion? Well, Meta's allowed to set those rules. Facebook's allowed to set the rules of those discussions. Now, these are, these are such large actors that um, the state does get involved, and there have been, you know, obviously a, a number of different laws that interoperate with this, but but it's not fundamentally about the First Amendment, because this is not at this point about the government suppressing speech. Um, part of the problem is that our speech takes place in these ostensibly public but truly private forums. And I think that's the first thing for people to realize, you know, where we have speech and, and how protected how protected our speech is depends on where that speech happens. And as I mentioned, we have protections in the public square and you have a right to be on a soapbox and in the village and, and shouting your message and, and that kind of thing or, or putting out pamphlets or literature in our public streets. But those freedoms do not extend to a private institution. And, and now that our speech happens on private institutions because form or because web two or because whatever, because it's enabled, uh, we are now having conversations that are not necessarily protected by the first amendment. And so the question is what else protects us? And do we want to be having our conversations there? Is that, is that an appropriate place? Well, um, I started to ask why, like, what, what is going on? Like that also just got me curious. Why have people decided to have their the, all of their um, emotive conversations and, and political conversations on what's essentially a private forum that is run by private actors who have their own viewpoints. I mean, in case you haven't noticed, Mark Zuckerberg's a human being with a viewpoint. You know, Elon Musk, who may own Twitter, is a human being with a viewpoint. And um, this is not be the first time that someone who, you know, uh, had a media corporation uh, directed it to, to toward a viewpoint. I mean, that's 
that's the story of media corporations. Um, people will accuse the Wall Street Journal of being on the right or the New York Times on the left, right? So we're not, we're not surprised by the idea that uh, some type of entity has, has a view or a position. Um, the idea that Facebook would be neutral is, is to me silly for that reason. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't trust them with all of our conversations because they won't treat them neutrally. It's a very confusing atmosphere when you consider that these very few platforms exist. Your Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, like these are the key players essentially in the mainstream world where people have tried to create other platforms uh, that are more maybe siloed for certain ideologies and such. And we've talked about, like you, you mentioned Parler, for example, being ta- being uh, being another player and then dealing with being taken down by Amazon for very similar reasons that we're talking about where there's where there's discretion with regards who you're hosting on your platform but these major platforms are only work because everyone's there and where does the line end up network effect i mean i mean you know if you want to post cat pictures so that you get the most likes you've got to go to the platform that has the most people i mean if you go to a platform that has no users and you have no friends and, and you post something, you're going to get no responses. Ostensibly, people are posting because they get some value from doing so. I'm just, I'm just operating on the basic assumption people are doing this action because they value it. They, they get validation. They get, there's some value in expression. But those values are magnified by the number of people you reach. So we have a network effect, right? Every time someone joins the network, it makes the network more valuable for everyone else. And we tend to have in these network effects, uh, these network industries, um, monopoly. I mean, that just sort of makes sense. There would, there's no real basis for there being multiple networks because, it, I mean, I find it personally annoying. Like I have to go to LinkedIn and post there and then I go to Twitter and I post there. And after this, you know, after this show, I'm going to go and, and promote my attendance uh, on the UNH podcast. And I'm going I'm to multi-home and I'm going to three or four different platforms and that'll take time and effort, and they all have slightly different requirements. It's easier to just go to one, and certainly I'm not going to go to 12. So you, know, you see that there's this natural inclination for there to be one winner, at least within a certain type of platform. Um, and this winner-take-all environment is magnified by the fact that we've given certain protections to platforms that allow them to escape liability. And this is where I get into the law a little bit. I don't, I don't think the law of... Um, the Constitution, the First Amendment is, is necessarily what's helpful here. I think what's helpful here is that we have granted these institutions a huge amount of immunity from liability. Typically, um, you know, there is a distinction between someone who is sort of a, a publisher who is actively uh, editing and writing and selecting information, and they're going to have liability for things that they say. You can't just say whatever you want, even with, by the way, the First Amendment. I mean, there's all, you know, first off, the First Amendment is limited. There's the common expression, you can't scream fire in a crowded theater. That actually is a little more complicated for another day and for a constitutional scholar. Uh, maybe that's been discussed on this podcast. Uh, you certainly can if there is, a, if there is a fire or if you're mistaken that there's a fire. Um, and your rights to, you, you, can't, you can't, for example, uh, say I, I'd like to assassinate, you know, X official or X person, right? There's, you know, limits to that speech. There's limits against hate speech. There's limits against inciting violence. So the First Amendment is limited anyway. Um, but who is liable for that speech? Well, um, the speaker is going to be liable for their own speech. And then do we consider the publisher to be a speaker as well? 
In the case of newspapers, those are speakers. They have some editorial process. They exercise discretion. They hire the writers. The writers are often their agents, if not by terms of employment, but um, uh, still an agency relationship where they have some independent contractor. The articles have been selected. And you know, even in cases where the editors have said, this is not the view of the insert newspaper here, um, there still is some question about liability. So those are publishers. And there was a, a debate around uh, Prodigy and CompuServe, if we remember those in the 90s, about whether those were publishers too. And they work a little differently. They, they, they said what they were doing is hosting message boards. So you may remember this, and this was, you know, you go into chat rooms. I don't know if those still exist, but or you'd have even message boards, which were really getting back before. I mean, this message boards really predated the traditional web too. I mean, I remember using them with, with Unix and like command lines and you would, you know, post and, and, and read what other people posted. Um, and there was some dispute about whether or not uh, those were um, editorial uh, postings by those, by those platforms because Prodigy made the board available, CompuServe made the board available. And in fact, the difference between the two systems is that um, some tried to police these uh, bulletin boards to make sure that it wasn't lewd, lascivious, hostile, you know, um, uh, different institutions had different purposes and Prodigy in particular wanted to create this sort of family-friendly web environment and took it upon themselves to try to um, remove content, which was, you know, hateful, offensive, problematic. And that act of, of taking down problematic content made them an editor. Hmm. So, Basically, the law went down in the 1990s that if you, CompuServe or Prodigy, try to make the web a cleaner, tidier, nicer place, now you're liable for anything that goes wrong. So what do you think the incentives are for that, right? To leave it alone and to let people go ballistic and tear each other to pieces because if I step in there, now suddenly I have legal liability for, for, that, for that discussion. Whereas if the, if the board, right? So... This was a real concern to this found foundational idea of, of this bilateral internet. And so um, a, bi uh, and a bipartisan um, senator uh, uh, effort uh, led, uh, a bipartisan effort led to what we now know as Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which effectively said that web publishers are, well, not publishers. They're just, they're, no matter what, no matter how much editorial discretion they apply, they're not liable. They get this special status and, and it's unique among the web. So, you know, it, it doesn't apply to bookstores. It doesn't apply to newspapers. It doesn't apply to zines. But once you move into the digital world, you now have this ability to host this forum and not take responsibility for what happens there. So this to me is the root of the problem because we've now, I mean, again, it, it came from a well-meaning place. We had this right. issue where companies said, I want to have a clean and tidy internet and I'm not going to do it. If you're going to make me liable, <laughs> I'll just let people go ballistic on each other because at least then I, I get views, I get likes, I get hits, I get people spending hours on my platform, seating each other with all this lascivious content and not my problem. Yeah. So that was not a good result. And so the result then shifted to, well, let's eliminate your liability. Um, but this meant this massive protection for social media organizations. And what do you see right after the law gets passed is you see the, the, real, the real growth of Twitter and Facebook coming into the early 2000s. And I, would, I don't want to say they took advantage of this rule. I mean, everyone takes advantage of law in the sense that 
you hire lawyers to, to, to try to get the law to work in your favor, right? I mean, that's, that's part of our job, but I, I, I'm confident that they knowingly uh, use this immunity to cultivate an environment where they were able to exercise a lot of discretion without, and have a business model that was fairly low legal risk. And as a result, they grew huge. They grew huge in this protected environment. And um, the subtitle of the paper is this is a this is a giant goldfish problem, right? We've we've allowed an organization which can grow infinitely large to have effectively infinite space in which to grow. It's the type of industry we'd expect to grow into a monopoly. So everything is happening just as we expected. We have these protected class of special institutions that have all the right incentives to grow infinitely large and capture everyone. And we've given them all the ability in the world to do that without any legal risk. So I'm just not surprised that that's exactly what happens. Does this lead to the kind of inconsistency and in policing of the platforms that we especially are seeing in Twitter, for example, has been brought up by many on the conservative side with Trump being banned. But on the same time, they have the DPRK <laughs> over in North Korea allowed to be on the platform, which is known for considerably more heinous crimes to uh, to uh, the people, let alone impact on the global stage. You know, one of my favorite things to teach in business associations comes straight from Dr. Seuss. So I'll teach a quick lesson from Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss identified this in his amazing book. I don't know if I have it on my shelf here. I, I always try to keep it on hand. Oh, the places you will go. And um, and he goes to, um, I think it was Whoville or something like that. Uh, maybe I'm mixing my stories. Anyway, it's it's called the Bee Watcher. Watcher. It's Watch Watch, right? That's where he, right? So in Watch Watch, they have a town bee and the town bee is lazy, you see, and he's not making enough honey. So they appoint a watcher to watch the bee because the theory is a bee who's watched will work harder, you see? But the watcher was lazy and wasn't watching enough. So they hired another watch watcher to watch the watcher to watch the bee. But the watch watcher watcher wasn't watching hard enough. And there's a long line of this problem, the bee watcher 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 problem. So who watches the watcher, right? This is, this is the uh, essential problem here. Who's going to guard the gatekeepers? And, and the answer is you can't. The short answer is that you can't, right? You can't actually create a system where you have monitor of monitor of monitor. It's infinitely expensive. What you need to do if you want to get this right is you need to align the incentives of the platform with society. You need to have some type of financial incentive for the platform that's aligned with good for society and certainly not a misalignment where a platform can make money by harming society. And if you have a rule that says anything goes in your platform, you can exercise editorial discretion and you're not liable, and you find that it's really valuable for you to create an environment where a bunch of really angry 19-year-olds you know, get together and, and rant about totally inappropriate things and maybe even plan um, inappropriate activities from, from those conversations, or let's take it, you know, take it a step bigger. Right? I'm sure it's bigger than just angry 19-year-olds in their parents' basement, but some, some actual you know, dangerous people that storm the Capitol. Um, if you can make that into a business model, you will. And that business model, in my own opinion, should not be protected from liability. It's just a step too far to say, okay, that's cool. That's the kind of speech we as a society want. We're going to give you this protection. We're going to let you make a million dollars running that. And we're not going to hold you liable for anything that happens. The result is going to be people are using, it's just misaligning society's goals from um, business goals. And, and when that happens, you can put an infinite number of watchers in the line, but if the incentives are wrong, the system will break.
What are some steps from the legal perspective that may remedy some of this? Or do you just like see this as like something's got to be looked at just from the total, total beginning all over again from the way we currently interpret um, like getting rid of 230 and everything like that? I, I think we need I do think we need to look at it over again, especially as we are now at the precipice of Web3. So this is a great time to reevaluate what we did right and did wrong in Web2 before we take a step into Web3. Now, Web3, by the way, that refers to like a decentralized metaverse. And so a whole different set of rules are going to apply. How do I distinguish them again? Web1, you've got these mostly central organizations that are mostly producing information. People are mostly consuming information. Web2, you have central institutions. People are both producing and consuming information. So you have all your user-generated content. You have your YouTubes, your Facebooks, your Twitters, your Instagram, your TikTok, right? We'll go down the list. Web three is that somehow that's allegedly going to get decentralized. So instead of there being Twitter, which is owned by shareholders and maybe someday owned by Elon Musk, who's going to exert personal editorial control, right? Um, kind of like how Rupert Murdoch exercised his control over the newspaper industry and, and that sort of thing, right? I mean, that's the if it's owned by a decentralized group of people because of blockchain technology and new forms of ownership, um, DAOs are now legal in Wyoming and recognized as entities. Um, you could have some type of decentralized platform where this happens. That's going to change the incentive structure. It's going to change the nature of what happens on the platform. And uh, what I'd like to do in my, my own research is to focus mainly on how do we get Web3 right, learning from what went wrong in Web2. And um, I think that's going to be the easiest because it's, 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 it's new territory, right? We're, we're carving out the law for that. That said, to your question about Web2, I mean, we, have some, we definitely have some work to do because we've clearly granted too much immunity to private actors. And as a result, we have two fundamental problems in Web2. So if I may just say a few things about that. Um, one uh, is that we just don't have a public web where people are having discourse. The web has become a private space. Why has that happened? Well, I think, again, two reasons. One, we've given incentives for corporations to grow incredibly large, like the giant goldfish who crowds out the rest from the pond, right? And part of that is the immunity and part of that is our market system. Um, but we haven't invested in public internet infrastructure enough. There isn't a and so there isn't a competitive public space. If you've ever been to a government webpage, I do it all the time to file documents. They're five years behind, ten years behind, twenty years behind the uh, private version of the same information system. Just look at um, the uh, Affordable Care Act rollout when the, that original website happened. The Affordable Care Act was a disaster. I mean, Microsoft would never have rolled out a product like that, right? Microsoft would have been able to go online and purchase their product. Um, yeah, the Affordable Care Act was a great example of a, of a, of a terrible disaster in, in public internet. So we have a really bad public internet, and so speech isn't going to happen there. So one idea is to, one solution is to invest in that, um, create protections around that, uh, maybe nonprofits. I, I personally distinguish Wikipedia from Facebook because Wikipedia is a nonprofit. It does not answer to a particular owner. Um, it was established with a mission. It has driven forward in that mission of sharing information and truth. It has succeeded in that and merits, in my opinion, that sort of nonprofit status of providing a public service. And its protections and protections from its editors um, have a, a different social function and social value than if we go and we protect Elon Musk from deciding to, I don't know, 
allow um, I, I, Bannon or whatever to, to rant on Twitter and you know that sort of thing because it, it attracts viewers. So bringing that public internet or even a nonprofit internet can happen one of two ways. And I think it's a combination of the two. One is scaling back some of the benefits, perks, and protections we've given to the large private internet providers, which have made um, you know the, the Zuckerbergs and the and and um, uh, the Dorsties and you know uh, the folks who have done that first iteration of Web two incredibly fabulously, undeniably bonkers wealthy, and created these huge institutions. So shift a little bit of the, the, there's resources there, right? And they're and they're taking advantage of of a law that gives them too much protection cut those protections down and make some investments in the either directly into the private sector or uh, the public sector, rather kind of creating the public web, creating those public spaces, or at least, um, you know, give nonprofits an advantage by offering them additional protections that for-profits do not have provided that they meet some kind of, we can define that social mission kind of like we used to have kind of equal airtime for, for different viewpoints. But if, uh, you know, if the platform can sort of guarantee viewpoint neutrality, through a process and merits, um, you know, a social stamp of approval. I would, I would say that that's how we that's how we correct this problem. People need a place to speak, and that place is going to be online. And so long as Facebook's the only choice, we're going to get more of the same. We're going to get more echo chambers, more problems, more promoting what people want to hear at the top of that list, which can drive them to um, think incorrectly. Uh, first off, false news, right? And second, I mean, to, to literally believe that the election has been stolen and it is your civic duty to go to our um, hallowed institutions and trample that ground with weapons and to threaten our elected officials, that amount of twisted thought, um, that, that mass delusion was, was really propagated by those news feeds that, that just continued showing you that until it just felt true. Um, so ending that, uh, ending, in, ending, or at least making that kind of activity um, potentially uh, an invitation for a lawsuit, um, you know, companies will respond by by not doing that, and uh, right, creating a public space uh, for people to continue engaging in conversation. Um, I think we then see like we kind of break down this estuary. We invite competition. Some of that competition is even bolstered by the fact that you know it's it's difficult for a non-hateful, viewpoint-neutral, you know, news-driven organization to compete with the hate-fueled, image-fueled rhetoric of all of your friends are agreeing with you. Uh, so we need to give them some competitive advantage in law. Certainly not a disadvantage. Professor Seth Ornberg, thanks for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So I'll be linking the episode in the episode description at law.unh.edu slash podcast, the uh, article we've discussed today. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast. 